Section 27 of Character. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Liam, Oxford. Character by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 7, Part D. There was no virtue that Dr. Arnold laboured more sedulously to instil into young men than the virtue of truthfulness, as being the manliest of virtues, as indeed the very basis of all true manliness. He designated truthfulness as moral transparency, and he valued it more highly than any other quality. When lying was detected, he treated it as a great moral offence, but when a pupil made an assertion, he accepted it with confidence. If you say so, that is quite enough. Of course I believe your word. By thus trusting and believing them, he educated the young in truthfulness, the boys at length coming to say to one another, It's a shame to tell Arnold a lie. He always believes one. One of the most striking instances that could be given of the character of the dutiful, truthful, laborious man is presented in the life of the late George Wilson, Professor of Technology in the University of Edinburgh. Though we bring this illustration under the head of duty, it might equally have stood under that of courage, cheerfulness, or industry, for it is alike illustrative of these several qualities. Wilson's life was, indeed, a marvel of cheerful laboriousness, exhibiting the power of the soul to triumph over the body, and almost to set it at defiance. It might be taken as an illustration of the saying of the whaling captain to Dr. Kane as to the power of moral force over physical. Bless you, sir, the soul will any day lift the body out of its boots. A fragile but bright and lively boy, he had scarcely entered manhood ere his constitution began to exhibit signs of disease. As early indeed as his seventeenth year, he began to complain of melancholy and sleeplessness, supposed to be the effects of bile. I don't think I shall live long, he said then to a friend. My mind will, must work itself out, and the body will soon follow it. A strange confession for a boy to make, but he gave his physical health no fair chance. His life was all brain work, study and competition. When he took exercise, it was in sudden bursts, which did him more harm than good. Long walks in the highlands jaded and exhausted him, and he returned to his brain work unrested and unrefreshed. It was during one of his forced walks of some twenty-four miles in the neighbourhood of Stirling that he injured one of his feet, and he returned home seriously ill. The result was an abscess, disease of the ankle joint, and long agony, which ended in the amputation of the right foot. But he never relaxed in his labours. He was now writing, lecturing, and teaching chemistry. Rheumatism and acute inflammation of the eye next attacked him, and retreated by cupping, blistering, and colchicum. Unable himself to write, he went on preparing his lectures, which he dictated to his sister. Pain haunted him day and night, and sleep was only forced by morphia. While in this state of general prostration, symptoms of pulmonary disease began to show themselves. Yet he continued to give the weekly lectures to which he stood committed to the Edinburgh School of Arts. Not one was shirked, though their delivery before a large audience was a most exhausting duty. 
Well, there's another nail put into my coffin, was the remark made on throwing off his top coat on returning home, and a sleepless night almost invariably followed. At 27, Wilson was lecturing 10, 11, or more hours weekly, usually with settons or open blister wounds upon him, his bosom friends, he used to call them. He felt the shadow of death upon him, and he worked as if his days were numbered. Don't be surprised, he wrote to a friend, if any morning at breakfast you hear that I am gone. But while he said so, he did not in the least degree indulge in the feeling of sickly sentimentality. He worked on as cheerfully and hopefully as if in the very fullness of his strength. To none, said he, is life so sweet as to those who have lost all fear to die. Sometimes he was compelled to desist from his labours by sheer debility, occasioned by loss of blood from the lungs, but after a few weeks' rest and change of air, he would return to his work, saying, The water is rising in the well again. Though disease had fastened on his lungs and was spreading there, and though suffering from a distressing cough, he went on lecturing as usual. To add to his troubles, when one day endeavouring to recover himself from a stumble occasioned by his lameness, he overstrained his arm and broke the bone near the shoulder, but he recovered from his successive accidents and illnesses in the most extraordinary way. The reed bent but did not break. The storm passed and it stood erect as before. There was no worry, nor fever, nor fret about him, but instead cheerfulness, patience and unfailing perseverance. His mind, amidst all his sufferings, remained perfectly calm and serene. He went about his daily work with an apparently charmed life, as if he had the strength of many men in him. Yet all the while he knew he was dying, his chief anxiety being to conceal his state from those about him at home, to whom the knowledge of his actual condition would have been inexpressibly distressing. I am cheerful among strangers, he said, and tried to live day by day as a dying man. He went on teaching as before, lecturing to the Architectural Institute and to the School of Arts. One day, after a lecture before the latter institute, he lay down to rest and was shortly awakened by the rupture of a blood vessel, which occasioned him the loss of a considerable quantity of blood. He did not experience the despair and agony that Keats did on a like occasion, though he equally knew that the messenger of death had come and was waiting for him. He appeared at the family meals as usual, and next day he lectured twice, punctually fulfilling his engagements, but the exertion of speaking was followed by a second attack of hemorrhage. He now became seriously ill, and it was doubted whether he would survive the night. But he did survive, and during his convalescence he was appointed to an important public office, that of director of the Scottish Industrial Museum, which involved a great amount of labour as well as lecturing in his capacity of professor of technology, which he held in connection with the office. From this time forward, his dear museum, as he called it, absorbed all his surplus energies. While busily occupied in collecting models and specimens for the museum, he filled up his odds and ends of time in lecturing to ragged schools, ragged kirks and medical missionary societies. He gave himself no rest, either of mind or body, and to die working was the fate he envied. His mind would not give in, but his poor body was forced to yield, 
and a severe attack of hemorrhage, bleeding from both lungs and stomach, compelled him to relax in his labours. For a month or some forty days, he wrote, a dreadful Lent, the mind has blown geographically from Araby the blessed, but thermometrically from Iceland the accursed. I have been made a prisoner of war, hit by an icicle in the lungs, and have shivered and burned alternately for a large portion of the last month, and spat blood till I grew pale with coughing. Now I am better, and tomorrow I give my concluding lecture, thankful that I have contrived, notwithstanding all my troubles, to carry on without missing a lecture to the last day of the Faculty of Arts to which I belong. How long was it to last? He himself began to wonder, for he had long felt his life as if ebbing away. At length he became languid, weary, and unfit for work. Even the writing of a letter cost him a painful effort, and he felt as if to lie down and sleep were the only things worth doing. Yet shortly after, to help a Sunday school, he wrote his Five Gateways of Knowledge as a lecture, and afterwards expanded it into a book. He also recovered strength sufficient to enable him to proceed with his lectures to the institutions to which he belonged, besides on various occasions undertaking to do other people's work. I am looked down upon as good as mad, he wrote to his brother, because, on a hasty notice, I took a defaulting lecture's place at the Philosophical Institution and discoursed on the polarisation of light. But I like work, it is a family weakness. Then followed chronic malaise, sleepless nights, days of pain and more spitting of blood. My only painless moments, he says, were when lecturing. In this state of prostration and disease, the indefatigable man undertook to write the life of Edward Forbes, and he did it like everything he undertook with admirable ability. He proceeded with his lectures as usual. To an association of teachers he delivered a discourse on the educational value of industrial science. After he had spoken to his audience for an hour, he left them to say whether he should go on or not, and they cheered him on to another half-hour's address. It is curious, he wrote, the feeling of having an audience like clay in your hands to mould for a season as you please. It is terribly responsible power. I do not mean for a moment to imply that I am indifferent to the good opinion of others, for otherwise, but to gain this is much less a concern with me than to deserve it. It was not so once. I had no wish for unmerited praise, but I was too ready to settle that I did merit it. Now the word duty seems to me the biggest word in the world, and is uppermost in all my serious doings. This was written only about four months before his death. A little later he wrote, I spin my thread of life from week to week rather than from year to year. Constant attacks of bleeding from the lungs sapped his little remaining strength, but did not altogether disable him from lecturing. He was amused by one of his friends proposing to put him under trustees for the purpose of looking after his health, but he would not be restrained from working, so long as a vestige of strength remained. One day in the autumn of 1859, he returned from his customary lecture in the University of Edinburgh with a severe pain in his side. He was scarcely able to crawl upstairs, medical aid was sent for, and he was pronounced to be suffering from pleurisy and inflammation of the lungs. 
his enfeebled frame, was ill able to resist so severe a disease, and he sank peacefully to the rest he so longed for after a few days' illness. Wrong not the dead with tears, a glorious bright to-morrow endeth a weary life of pain and sorrow. The life of George Wilson, so admirably and affectionately related by his sister, is probably one of the most marvellous records of pain and long-suffering, and yet of persistent, noble and useful work that is to be found in the whole history of literature. His entire career was indeed but a prolonged illustration of the lines which he himself addressed to his deceased friend, Dr. John Reed, a like-minded man whose memoir he wrote. Thou wert a daily lesson of courage, hope and faith. We wondered at thee living, we envy thee thy death. Thou wert so meek and reverent, so resolute of will, so bold to bear the uttermost and yet so calm and still. End of section 27